have your Bibles, would you please open to Luke chapter 1? While you're doing that, I want to remind you of a little thing that we're doing with, um, I call Beyond the Sermon. And if you will text the word beyond to this number that you see on the screen, what I do is anybody that has signed up for that, I send various text messages or messages during the week that relates to the sermon. Oftentimes it's uh, a study guide, it may be some questions for thought, it may be some related scriptures, it may include a song that I have found particularly meaningful to this, but lots of different interactions gone on that. I've really enjoyed uh, interacting with different people on that, and so to those of you that have reached back to me through that method, I'm enjoying that, keep that up. Just so you know that it's a text message that you'll receive, and if you reply to it, you're not lighting up everybody else's phone. It's coming straight back to me, and it's a great way for us to be take the sermon beyond just the Sunday and bring it into, into our week. So I invite you to be a part of that. If you want, you can sign up for that right now, um, right from your phone. Well, I'm just going to dive in and just ask you, what is it that makes you sing? Why do you sing? Now, I realize not all of us are gifted with the gift of a singing voice, like I am. Um, man, now I'm clearly in the make a joyful noise category. But you can probably catch me if, if you were to drive along beside me. You would see me singing at the top of my lungs inside my vehicle by myself. Every now and then I pulled up next to somebody and I keep singing and then realize that I'm at a stoplight and more people can now see me. One time I looked over and realized the person next to me was singing the song that I was singing, which meant we were on the same station on the radio at the time. But what makes us sing? And I start there because when Luke opens his story of telling about Jesus, like chapters 1 and chapters 2 might as well be a musical. You know, musicals are really unique forms of entertainment because in the musical the storyline will be going along and then suddenly at some point everybody will break out into the same song, right? Like if you've seen no other musical, you've seen High School Musical. You know, this does not accurately describe high school life, right? And yet people just start breaking out in song right in the middle and this is seen as normal in that world. Well, in Luke, people keep breaking out in song. They keep having this moment where they start praising God seemingly spontaneously. And they then make certain statements about song. Now, what's interesting is that these are kind of cryptic songs. And so... To get us in the mood for this, I thought I would have a little contest here. Nothing like coming to church and being competitive, right? This way you can go home and you can brag, okay? So you've probably seen this before, but the reason I had you say Merry Christmas to the person next to you is because if you just want to turn to the person next to you, you can challenge them in this. And so I'm going to show you a, um, about five titles of Christmas carols that the names have been embellished a little bit. Preachers, we tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. So here you go. 
So here's the first one. You can just look on the screen. The title, Embellish the Interior Passageways. See, now you got it. This is, of course, Deck the Halls. Now what you want to be sure is that you brag to the person next to you first that you know it. Okay? Because I want you to go home feeling good. Number two is this one. Nocturnal time span of unbroken quietness. Silence night. Very well. Number three. In awe of the nocturnal time span characterized by religiosity. That's my favorite title, by the way. In awe of nocturnal time span characterized by religiosity, which, of course, is... I love that one because that's not even quite a three-word title that we made into, you know, eight and nine words there. Next, proceed forth declaring upon a specific geological alpine formation. Go tell it on the mountain. And I think we'll end with one more. Do we have one more? Move thitherward the entire assembly of those who are loyal in their belief. Jingle bells. Good guess. <laughs> this one is, O come all ye faithful. I just like the word thitherward. It would make my season if you would try to work that word into conversation sometime this week. Thitherward. What, what's about these songs is that we've taken something and we've made it complicated, right? Well, that, that happens a lot in just general popular music. There are many songs that you need to understand the backstory to to understand the meaning of the song. They're what I would call cryptic songs. Okay? And if you're of a certain generation, you're going to recognize some of these. If you think about the song Hotel California, okay, you, that's got all kinds of weird, wild imagery in it, and you've got to go, what does this mean? What's the backstory here? What's going on? What do these, these symbols and images mean? It's a cryptic song. Maybe that's not yours. Maybe you're more familiar with the long song, American Pie, with all of its imagery. You know, Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the... And the levee was... What does that mean? It's cryptic, right? That whole song has got all kinds... And people have studied that song, and they've tried to figure it out. They've tried to look at at the different things. Is it an accounting of history? Does it have to do with the Vietnam War? What does it mean? Maybe you're a little bit more recent, and yours is Phil Collins in the air tonight. It's got all this imagery. It's all this thing. What's it about? If you understand some of the backstory, you can try to start interpreting it. Stairway to Heaven, same kind of deal. Maybe none of those are from your generation. If you want other songs that try to send messages coded in... Any song by Taylor Swift does this. She has got the revenge song down. But there's all these embedded messages in it, and if you understand the context, you can understand the song. And that describes the songs in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the song we're going to look at today. 
So some backstory. We're talking about peace today. And with the word peace, in the Old Testament, that's the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that before. That's a common greeting even in modern times. Shalom, it means peace. Now, the definition of the word we call peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It's not simply like, can we just have some peace and quiet, which means we just need the kids to not fight anymore. But peace means there's something more there, something better in the absence of conflict. In fact, what it means is whole, made complete, restored. And so if you have peace in your life, you have a whole life. You're complete. It's The words often used sometimes, if it was a wall that had fallen down and repaired, it could be brought back to shalom or back to completeness again. That which was disorganized and chaotic has been brought in, into order, and there is this shalom, this peace. More than simply the absence of fighting, there is something better in its place. And so when Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace, he's bringing this idea of shalom. And in the song we're going to look at, it is a song inspired by the coming of the King, the coming of Jesus. But again, you have to place the song into this entire backstory, into this entire scope of Scripture. And here's what I firmly believe. Our entire Bibles are the message and story of Jesus. It's Everything in the Bible is pointing towards Jesus. It's not just simply a slice of the Bible that talks about Jesus. Every part of the Scripture talks about Jesus. And so what I would just tell you is Jesus is throughout the Bible. In fact, if you want to take a picture of this slide or copy this down when we get to it, but this will help you understand where Jesus shows up because if you understand where he where this song fits and what Zechariah, who sings the song, is doing, you understand where Jesus is, is and he's being proclaimed and we're supporting. So throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. And so you have many of the prophecies. We read the one earlier, Isaiah 9-6, where it says he's mighty, wonderful, counselor, prince of peace. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. When you get to the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. This is the story, the mission, the life, the ministry of Jesus. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. When you get to the book of Acts, this is the account of the early church. Jesus is preached. He's proclaimed. And you have this breaking out of the church and breaking out of the gospel message, the good news message of Jesus. When you get to the epistles, and that's a fancy word for the letters, and most of our New Testament is comprised of letters, Jesus is explained. And the different authors, mainly Paul, but not just Paul, Paul, Peter, John, and some others, they are explaining this incredible truth that Jesus has come into the world and he rose from the dead. And when you get to the last book or document in your New Testament, in the entire Bible, it's Revelation. And there Jesus is expected. See, once again, he's expected to return again. And that's where we live right now. And so that is the sweeping story of what Scripture is doing. Jesus is the star, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. 
It all points back to Jesus. And so when we come across this song and when we read it, it's going to seem like a cryptic song. And we're going to work our way through it, but you have to understand the song plays a part and fits in a much larger story that Scripture is trying to tell us and Zechariah in his singing of this song is trying to tell us. If you remember from last week, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were... Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth was the daughter of a priest. They are a married couple. They are late in years. They're in the twilight years of their life. And Zechariah fulfills his duty going into the temple to burn incense. And there he's encountered by Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him that even though in your old age you're going to have a child. And you're going to have not just a child, but you're going to have a son that has a particular mission from God. Zechariah hesitates and he doubts. And Gabriel says, this will happen. But because of your doubt, you will now go nine months without being able to speak. The nine months have now passed when we pick up the story. And it's at the time of the birth. And this is where you have it in in chapter 1. They gather together in verse 57. And I'll just summarize a few of these verses here. In verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives, they come and they gather around. And the tradition was that you would name the child after someone in your family. So everybody expected Zach Jr. to be the name. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And so they almost go, well, she's crazy. Let's go talk to her husband. And they ask him, what's his name? And he asked for a tablet. I don't know if it was an iPad or an Android, but he asked for a tablet. And he writes, his name is John. And remember, John has a meaning. God is gracious. And when he writes, if you're reading those, that first about ten verses right there, when he writes that, at that moment... His tongue is loosened now. And suddenly he regains his ability to speak. And not only does he begin to talk, he begins to sing. And so I want to walk you through this cryptic song. But remember, the song fits into a larger picture. And we're going to talk about what he means with this song and what the story of peace. And we're going to come back to the idea of peace at the very end. Because that's what his song is pointing us to. So, if you'll follow along, we'll pick up his song. We get this little bit of intro in verse 67. In verse 67, this is the first words that he said in nine months. And now he begins to proclaim. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. That means he talked on behalf of God. And what I will do is I'm going to break this into three sections. And at each section, if you're following along and I hope you're taking some notes or maybe you've got an app open, I'm going to give you a word that summarizes what I think Zechariah is proclaiming in each of these sections. And this will be a way that if you want to go back later and you want to read and you want to study, that will give you a word to kind of hang some of these thoughts on. And so, if you would, here's the song that Zechariah saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. 
He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So we'll we'll stop right there. So 67, 68 through 71 right there. The word that I think that we need to key in on there is the word redeemed. And if you want to write that word, write redeemed next to those verses. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. What's the idea of redeemed? Simple. It's bought back at a price. When you redeem something, you're cashing something in, right? You redeem a coupon. You redeem a prize notification. You redeem something where you are cashing something in. But there's a price that's being paid. Somewhere there's an exchange going on. And what Zechariah, the very first words that he says in nine months, is he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And you have been redeemed at a price. Understand how powerful these senses are. You're going to see gospel going all the way through this song. This is one of the original gospel songs. Because what Zechariah is stating is that God has come. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you found your way to God. Right? You were successful in finding out where God was hiding Congratulations, you win. No, no, no. He says, God has come. He is talking in this moment about the miracle that's going to be occur called the incarnation. Incarnation is where God put on flesh in the person of Jesus and walked on the planet with us. God covered the gap. God came the distance. Luke later is going to talk, describe this God when Jesus tells the parable of what we typically call the prodigal son. Maybe you're familiar with that story, but Jesus begins to describe God. And as he describes God, he says, God's like a father, and he waits on the front porch to see his son that has gone off to live a life that the father does not approve of. But yet night after night after night, he waits, and he looks down the road hoping to see the son top and when he does he does not stand on the front porch and wait to give him a lecture when he gets there he leaps off the porch and he runs to meet him Isaiah I mean Zechariah is saying this is the God that comes our direction and pays the price for us the price has been paid for you Jesus comes into the world and knows the entire time he's going to the cross to pay the price. The miracle of the crucifixion and resurrection begins with the miracle of the incarnation. The tomb begins in the manger. Christmas and Easter are linked together, and that's what Zechariah is proclaiming. And he says, You have been redeemed. He goes on, he says, He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's very cryptic language. Did a lot of study on this this week. There's a metaphor in the Old Testament that shows up in several psalms, several 
different, idea, different places. The idea is this. It's like a bull or an ox or a bison after some kind of battle, raising its head, lifting its horns high. The victory has been won. Anytime you see the horn being lifted up in this way, it's the idea that the victory has already been won. He is once again placing this in the context of the overall story. He's remembering back to the time when the people of Israel, the people of God, were slaves in Egypt. And God led them out and there was a victory that occurred. And time and time again you get this victory. And so what Zechariah is proclaiming is not that, that we're crossing our fingers and we're hoping that God can get all this done. Notice he's declaring it as if it's already happened. Because it's happened once and now he's looking for the new happening of it again in the person of Jesus the salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now he's looking forward again. The price was paid for you. And wherever you are today, just know that God loves you so much. And you may come today and think that you are broken and worthless but he loves you so much that he would rather die than live without you. That's the price he was willing to pay. Song goes on, verse 72. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. From 72 to 75, I want you to write the word, remember. Remember. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember His holy covenant. Now, pay real close attention to this because this is super cool. Who's doing the remembering in that verse? God is. It does not say, lucky for you, you remembered God. Lucky for you, at the worst point in your life, you thought about God and things started getting better. It's saying, to show mercy to us, he remembered his covenant and his oath that he swore to Abraham. If you go back in the Old Testament, again, this is all in a larger story. There is a moment, a powerful moment, where Abraham has been promised that he's going to have not he's going to have children upon children upon children. He's going to have a nation come from his lineage, which is an incredible miracle because at the moment he doesn't have a child. But God makes a covenant, and a covenant is a promise that you keep regardless of whether the other side keeps their promise or not. God makes a promise to him that his descendants will bless the entire earth. And what God is saying is that from your descendants is going to come the one that we call the Messiah, Jesus. And so it's so powerful here. 
is that what Zechariah is telling us is that God remembered his promise. Not that we remembered our promise to God, but God remembered his promise. He is always faithful. That's what he's doing. So the powerful thing here is not that you remembered, but that God remembers you. God is a promise keeper even when we're lousy at it at times. How many of you have been hurt by a broken promise? And what Zechariah is saying is God keeps all promises. God fulfills His covenant with us. He remembers you even when you forget Him. He has not lost sight of you. Now, there may be moments where it's hard for us to see God, but that's not because He's gone somewhere. Because we've lost sight. But He's got His eyes on you. Because He loves you dearly. God restores. God remembers. Verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, this is the part where Zechariah is talking about his own son that was just born, John. Prepare the way for him, Jesus, okay? To give his people, now he's right back and talking about Jesus. For everything else, he's talking about Jesus again. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. God is coming our direction. He remembers His promise. And what is He going to do? He's going to bring salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And even though we walk in what's called the valley of the shadow of death, and that's a reference right back to Psalm, again, it all ties, ties back in. God is on a mission. So the word that I want you to write next to these last verses is the word restore. God redeems us. He remembers us. And ultimately, He's on a mission of restoration. Now let's talk about restoration just for a second. What does restoration mean? Restoration is the idea that something that is old, broken, discarded can be made new. You'll see often DIY projects, do-it-yourself projects where you can go on YouTube and find all these different videos and they'll take some old wood, perhaps old barn wood, or an old pallet or something. And out of the old pallet or out of the old barn wood that's been discarded, that is seen as trash at this moment. The craftsman or the artist will come in and they will make something beautiful, a piece of furniture, some kind of family heirloom, a piece of art to hang on the wall. And it has incredible beauty and it's restored. But it's not restored simply to what it was before. It's restored to a new creation, better and more valuable than it ever was before. You can be 
restored. The power of the resurrection brings about this transformation into something that is even better before. Randy, go to the next slide. The promise of Christmas is the promise of restoration of all things. This, this is what Zechariah is proclaiming. When Christmas comes into the world, Jesus comes into the world, that the restoration of all things is possible even in your life. Christmas is hard for a lot of us, isn't it? Because we see happiness around us and we just wish we could have some of that in our life. Because your family doesn't get along like all the songs that we sing. You're not looking forward to being at Christmas because you know who's going to be there. Because oftentimes we'll come together and you're like, I cannot endure one more conversation about politics at all. Or perhaps this has been a difficult season and now you're at odds with your spouse. And somebody's not remembering a promise that they made. Or you're at odds with, a, with an adult child that you just wish that would pick up the phone once and call. And so you could be a parent once again. And the promise of Christmas is that God can restore all things, but not simply to what they were before, even though that's our prayer. He can make something new and beautiful out of it. I came across this illustration. There's a form of pottery in Japan known as kintsugi pottery. Kintsugi pottery, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But it's the idea that when a, a bowl or a tea set was broken, you didn't simply discard it and start again. You took the broken pieces and through a process and a master artist would come in and they would lacquer the pieces back together again using a special substance that was laced with gold. And it came out too beautiful. I've got a picture of one of this. Here's a bowl that's been used this process. And so the bowl was obviously smashed into many pieces broken but instead of being discarded the master artist took it and using gold created something of greater value and greater beauty and a bowl that's undergone this process becomes priceless to many that's a pretty powerful image of what God's doing and desires to do in your life. You may feel like your life is in pieces. And maybe you were the one that was holding the hammer when it got smashed. But we serve a God that loves you enough to send Jesus into the world. And as a master artist wants to restore your life. Not simply to the default setting of what it was before, but to something that is even more beautiful and more precious. Using all the scars, using all the cracks, using all the fractures to create unbelievable beauty. Because remember, shalom is not simply the absence of fighting 
but it's something better in its place. And so God wants to bring shalom in. And with the beauty of Christ in your life, filling all of those places, we have whole and complete. And that's why Zechariah ends his song with, to guide our feet into the valley, into the path of peace, to the path of shalom. We sing a well-known song, It Is Well. And many of you are familiar with the background of the song. Horatio Spafford was a businessman that sent his family ahead of him on a trip to Europe. And when you traveled by boat across the, the Atlantic, it was oftentimes dangerous. And the boat that had his wife and his daughters on sank. His wife survives and she makes it to Europe and telegraphs back, I alone survived. So he quickly tries to gather his things together, wrap up the business that he had, and, and as he sails across, the captain of the ship notifies him when they come near the spot that he lost his family, lost all of his children. And he's overcome in that moment, as you can only imagine what grief that would be, this broken moment, and he begins to pen a poem, It Is Well. And what's powerful about this poem is even though nobody would think that his soul is anywhere whole, but by the power of God, it is made whole. And then his song has some, or his poem has some of an advent because it's waiting, because when you get to the third verse, it's looking forward to the coming again. So I can't think of any better way than for us to close this message out than we would sing that song and let this be our plea and our prayer. And whatever restoration you need in your life, invite God in and let Him begin that process. Let's stand, let's worship.